Hi Secret and Patreoners, welcome back. Today I want to talk to you a little bit about the immigration story of the United States. It's a pretty vast topic, but with centralized focus on certain eras and decades and cultural practices that began, um, which really began a staple of our modern day Pledge of Allegiance and uh, many other things that we probably tend to use on a daily basis that we really don't think a lot about. So um, I'm going to get right into it because it's kind of a lot of uh, stuff to cover and I'm going to go over my notes here as I talk through this with you. Um, and kind of how it pertains to the secret a treasure hunt book because one of the fundamental basis of the book is to understand the United States mythology because Byron thought it would be fun to make a book about our own kind of folklore and our own mythology because so many other European countries and Asian countries, African countries, all of these wonderful places have a very interesting mythological and folkish past. So what started out to be kind of um, a fun sort of exploratory immigration um, lesson, you could also maybe at the end of the lesson find a gem. So let's talk a little bit about immigration and why Byron would have chose that as a central figure to the culmination of what was the New World. So, and we can start basically um, with the Pledge of Allegiance. In 1892, uh, Francis Bellamy, um, who was a Christian minister, uh, he devised what would become the Pledge of Allegiance, which would then be recited by school kids um, in what he had created was the Youth Companion, which was a booklet. And it really kind of had its, its initial debut, so to speak, at the uh, Columbia's World's Fair. And uh, so this was uh, to celebrate, of course, Christopher Columbus's 400-year anniversary of, quote-unquote, discovering the New World, which we also know that Leif Erikson found it way before him. But anyway, funny how Chris always winds his way back into things, you know, interesting uh, Indies native he is. So... It basically grew into a more popular ritual and then became something that we wanted to recite in schools um, because there was a feeling of patriotism that was spreading across the country in the new wave of immigrants where they could finally feel they had a place, they had a country, they had a home. And this was sort of kind of paying homage to that just a little bit. Um, and at the same time in 1892, 
Ellis Island opened up its immigration center. And it opened basically to kind of scan out the quote-unquote undesirable immigrants, which is really kind of a, a dark spot on U.S. history, although I know there's many. But to put this in context, this was all happening right kind of in the midst of the Gilded Age. And so before the Gilded Age, you had the Reconstruction Era, which was from like 1865 to 1877. And then you also had um, the Gilded Age in there from 1870 to like 1900. And then the Progressive Era follows after that. And so uh, the reason this is important, too, is you have to understand a lot of this centers around not only the beginning wave of immigration in the early 1600s, but also um, the wave of immigrants from there to the Civil War, the Reconstruction Era, which is the era kind of preceding what we're talking about because Reconstruction is, is a technical term for the era after the Civil War. So, in, in broad speak, American immigration, kind of in two periods, you have the first one, which was 1607 to 1815, which was mainly British time periods. You had a lot of immigrants that came in from England, Ireland, uh, Scotland, and Wales. And then the second period, we had a mass mass immigration period from 1815 to 1880. And so historians call this particular period old immigration. And we could even potentially make a tie there in the book to the old world. Something to consider there. Eight million, eight million immigrants came in that time period. Two of the largest groups were, we know, Irish and German. And so there were significant numbers from Britain and Scandinavia, but this period also marks the significant immigration of Chinese. And they had come in the period of 1849 for the California Gold Rush. So... These immigrations really transformed the U.S. in so many ways. We had cheap labor, industrial revolution with the westward expansion. We had also how it had shaped the American culture. So religion, for example, um, the greatest amount of immigrants in this period were the Irish and German. And the states were predominantly Protestant. So with the Irish and German influx, it brought Catholicism uh, and a lot of it, <laughs> which then made up the majority religion all the way up to the Civil War. So I think it's some 70% of religions 
the largest amount of religions up to the Civil War were Catholics. So, how did the native indigenous people respond to this movement? Well, with anger and fear, and fearing that the immigrants would be radical and resemble socialism and communism and the like. And when I say native indigenous, I only mean native to born in America. I can't kind of lump in the native tribes just yet. So this is native born Americans if they had come here in that first period. So here it is, you have what would consider the natives in the first period going, whoa, whoa, wait, who are all these people coming in here? You know, and they began to fear um, what these immigrants represented if they were socialists, if they were communists. Um, so these people then were nicknamed the know-nothings. And if you look back in political history, we also know that there was a political um, party also called the know-nothings. So, and this was right around in that time frame because we do know that Theodore Roosevelt was part of that at one time. So, despite this opposition, the immigrants gained a foothold in society and eventually they were accepted. So, then we'll go on to the third wave. So this is called the New Stranger Period <laughs> or New Immigration, which was the third wave from 1880 to 1924. So we had volume and sources that changed dramatically and immigrants doubled over the previous phase. So now they came from Southern and Eastern European countries. Most came from Italy and Russia. So if you're looking at the Russian immigration specifically to the United States, this is a good time from 1880 to 1924 where a lot of these folks came too. After the third wave, we have the fourth period, uh, which is 1924 then to 1965, which was the period of restriction. Congress passed laws to sharply lower the flow of immigration, um, but even still, it didn't stop completely. Only about five million got to come during these years. So, after 1924 to 1965, we have what we're now in, which is the current period, which is 1965 to now. And uh, in this time, we've had Congress eliminate many of the previous restrictions that were put in place in the fourth period. And this phase has seen over 30 million people arrive. So 30 million is the count right now between 1965 and now. And because many of us don't have to look very far into our past for our ancestry, we view immigration as normal. 
other countries don't allow it or very little of it for fear of their economic systems drastically changing. Um, they Immigration to us in America in the United States uh, as a whole is considered kind of normal. Uh, immigration is an exception in a lot of other countries. They see it as a threat to their natural resources and a burden to their culture and their economy. So they're kind of afraid of that. So one thing to point out here too is there is no nation in human history that has accepted more immigrants than the United States. But let's go back to the third period. So 20 million people came in the third period from 1880 to 1924. So at, 19, at the year 1900, our total population in the United States was at approximately 75 million. So the latter group to these Italians and Russians included Polish, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. The majority of these people were Jewish. Approximately one-third of the world's Jewish population migrated to the United States in this time. And this is important to note, too, because if you follow along in the secret book and you know that some of our creators and authors uh, are Jewish and have this very same ancestry, this is part of their family and their family's journey. But why would people want to immigrate here? Broadly speaking, oftentimes the term that is thrown around is freedom. But when I've spoken to students and I say, what kind of freedom? You need to be more specific. What do you mean? So, a lot of emotion and sentimentalism kind of bumble up when we think of our ancestors. Grandparents and great-grandparents making the long journey to America and nothing could be more noble than the cause for freedom. But when we actually set in motion and set aside emotion, we see the number one reason to come here in 1615, 1715, 1815, 1915, or today is the pursuit of prosperity. So if you notice, we have, and I've put these photos up here of the immigrants coming to into the harbor in New York and you see the Statue of Liberty. And then of course, I put the flag there for we the people because you know, we are a broad spectrum of people that make up the United States. And as we're learning, that is even more evident now. Um, but also the picture closest to the secret deciphered photo emblem. 
and you see they had these officers that were, as I said, when they're scanning, when they opened Ellis Island and they're scanning these immigrants for the not so good ones, they are checking them over. Bodily orifices, looking in their eyes, their nose, their ears, giving them a full inspection. How do they walk? Are they walking kind of limply? If they are, they stay on the boat, they go back. Um, how smart are they? Given tests, things of that nature. And so we've come a long way from that. But I can't imagine what that would feel like um, going through that process, which is why I think that picture is just so poignant and courtesy from the National Park Service for sharing some of those photos with us. Um, and again, I put the chart here so that you can kind of follow along and see. Notice when we have severe dips down, the first one and then the one here in the 1920 to 1930s, that's pretty self-evident because we had the stock market crash of 1929. So typically when we have these lulls in the market, people st stopped coming here. They were afraid. They didn't know if our market would rebound or what our country would turn into. So they did not make the journey in those times out of fear. And it goes back to the pursuit of prosperity. So, or the pursuit of economic freedom. So immigrants were prospering from the Industrial Revolution uh, and farming with the help from the Homestead Act, which we know about that too. But in both depressions, as I said, immigration dropped dramatically. So economic freedom doesn't have kind of like a romantic feel to it, but it comes with more freedoms, really such as democracy, civil rights, racial and religious tolerances. Immigrants did care about these things too. Um, usually though, most would cite that economic freedom above all was the reason they wanted to come. And their letters conveyed this to their homeland and their families back home in their own mother country where one immigrant wrote here the food is overflowing and we get to drink as much sweet milk as we desire when the milk becomes sour it is thrown to the pigs and this is uh a letter from a Norwegian immigrant. And it's important to note this because when they talk about the land of milk and honey, they are talking about the potential for their economic prosperity and freedom. When they could come here and get land and farm and sell their goods or sell their their cattle whatever it is that they were farming their wheat their corn and they could make money for themselves sustain themselves and also eat and at the same time have the freedom to worship as they pleased 
this is truly a land of opportunity. And why it's important to understand the immigration story. There are some issues with, you know, what pulled a lot of them here? How did they know? We know that steamships, railroads, uh, posters, newspapers, pamphlets, all made their way back to Europe and to these other countries through these steamliners because they wanted to make money too. They wanted to haul people and cargo and they didn't matter if you were not the healthiest or whatever, they still just wanted to sell you a ticket and bring you over, right? So in that, the steamships were making money, the railroads were making money. And these pamphlets also uh, would offer help to immigrants uh, to feel safe enough to make the journey. One of the things that is really critical today in some of these instances with the Ukraine or, you know, we have these organizations that specifically set out to help immigrants still to this day, um, which really became kind of the American way, right? So, but some of them came and they worked and they farmed and they made enough money for themselves that they also wanted to go back home. And so some of them did just that. They, they did what they could here, what they felt was they wanted to prosper and, and or take money home. And their duty was essentially done. But uh, in the late 1840s, Ireland, of course, had their famine, and uh, this is the Great Potato Famine, and one in seven Irish people, Irish immigrants, um, decided, you know, I, I might be a little afraid to make that trek, we'll just stay here. And that resulted in over a million people dying. So, little note into this, too, if we think about the russet potato, the Idaho russet potato, the Burbank, Luther Burbank, was a genetic um, botanist uh, slash um, scientist grower, created a russet potato that was disease resistant against the blight that was going on in Ireland with their potato famine because it was a blight and helped them reproduce their potatoes again to something that would survive the fungal blight. And of course we know Luther Burbank, Burbank, California is named after that. They're called Burbank russets because of Luther, because of Luther Burbank. So another little good fairy 
in America, if you really think about in context of the book of finding the good fairies um, and why Byron was you know, originally going to do a second book if the first book did better uh, so that we could talk about these people that we find that were good fairies. So, but we moving on from the 1840s famine in 1880, uh, the Russian Jewish folks had the anti-Semitic uh, pogroms and passage of laws against their religion and against them specifically. And some of them stayed hoping and uh, praying that things would get better. But sadly, it did not. Um, and so we have that kind of time period of immigration to look at as well to the new world. But what does this mean and how does this matter? Immigrants aren't typical citizens. They are bold people. They are risk takers. They're go-getters. And many, like I said, went back home. Um, after they felt they had received what they felt was prosperity or enough to survive to get back home to restart their business or redo things because oftentimes in Europe there was a lot of fluctuation with a lot of these other European countries' governments as well. Um, in this time, the over half the Italians that had originally come went back home. So, it's worth, and the Greek immigrants as well, because um, in the progressive era, which precedes the Gilded, right, is, is when this kind of came to fruition. So, these are things along with what pulled them here, also what pushed them back home. So, you know, they felt um, also when they were getting kind of pushed around in their own countries, oftentimes some of these European uh, countries would force military conscription on people for 10 to 20 years. So, not only leaving your home country because of religious intolerance um, or persecution, population growth in certain areas where there were more people than there were resources, they wanted to get away from, you know, being forced into military work um, and having really nothing to gain for it. You know, they've lost their life, their livelihood, and oftentimes when they went into this military conscription, they never saw their families again. So I can't imagine what that would be like, nor would I ever want to. But another reason was industrialization. Um, it worked for some, but wiped out many others' livelihoods. Uh, if we look at another one of the reasons uh, Andrew Carnegie's family wanted to come here in the 1830s, 
Um, his father was a weaver. And when the industrial period started, they created these new weaving machines that would then take over what he was doing in Scotland, in Dumfries. So they moved to America um, because all of the weaving was wiped out in Scotland due to the Industrial Revolution, right? And, and during this process of machinery and technology. And... That's actually how his family wound up in Pittsburgh. And with Andrew Carnegie, he himself, of course, uh, as we know, one of the richest men in the world um, of his time, also wanted to give back. Give back to his community, give back to Dumfries, Scotland. Um, I think the number is he has built over or approximately 1,700 libraries in the United States and I believe over 25,000, 2,500, I have to double check that number, trying to go off memory, sometimes it's a little rusty. Point being, he gave pretty much all of his money away before he died. And he famously said that if you die rich, you know, you essentially die a poor man because you haven't really given back to what helped you become who you are. Whether that was the nice man on the, down the road that gave you a free paper every day to look for jobs or those kinds of things. And those were people and children that he wanted to help. And pay it forward. So, but when we think about where did most of these immigrants settle? Well, they settled everywhere, all over the US. Most people want to tend to think about the big cities like New York City, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco. But really, from the late 19th century, to the early 20th, farmsteads and small towns and cities, you know, the West was um, really kind of the, the foothold for immigrants. And they would have purchased land from railroads and use of the Homestead Act to um, acquire these properties all the way up to the miners in Idaho. So, in 1870, 25% of Idaho's immigrants were born in China. In 1870, Nebraska, 25% were foreign-born. And in 1880, Minnesota had a third of its population foreign-born. So, with North Dakota rounding it out in 1890, 40% of its population were also foreign-born. And one really interesting thing to note here. I posted the photos yesterday or day before of my trip to the indigenous market. And lo and behold, at the Idlejorg Museum, they had the Andy Warhol, Andy Warhol's West exhibit up, which I had posted some pictures of there. So Andy Warhol was like, extremely enamored and moved by the indigenous peoples of North and South America. And he began collecting 
a bunch of indigenous tribal art, rugs, blankets, jewelry, pictures, everything. I mean, this is why I think in one of those photos I showed pictures of Andy Warhol's apartment. It's just so full of the stuff that they wound up auctioning off. But he did all of these different um, sketches, paintings, art of these indigenous people that I took the photos of and put, put up for you to look at. But also something interesting about he did a, a portrait of Custer. So we know that Custer had the battle of Little Bighorn um, and was an out-and-out outright fight and lost to the Apache, the Cheyenne, because they had come together to battle Custer because they didn't want to give up the Black Hills, right? They didn't want to give up the gold and their lands. So interesting to note that 40% of Custer's army at the Battle of Little Bighorn were Irish, English, German, and Italian immigrants. So that's another reason I posted that photo um, here today with the tribal leaders of the indigenous groups, and there's a couple more added in there too, um, for their victory day, which would have been yesterday. So when we really look at the westward expansion from immigration, the term manifest destiny, and I took a picture of that on a little slot machine that one of the tribal market places had there and it was so important to look at because um, that was not only a movement for people to find economic prosperity but it was also a time where these indigenous tribes were um, really dispersed and destroyed. So I'm going to get into the next segment about where did they settle in the big cities. And then after that, we will go into another video about all of the all the ins and outs of their migrant journey. So, where did these migrants, immigrants settle in the big cities? Well, it's still in the old immigration period that we're talking about. New York, a melting pot of immigration. The Lower East Side was the largest heavily saturated area of immigrants. The Lower East Side had three areas. It had Little Africa, Little Germany, and Little Ireland. Although Little Ireland was slightly larger than the large amount of Little Germany. And in 1890s, during the new immigrant period, because we have the old immigrant period and the new immigrant period, the Little Germany transformed to a massive Jewish enclave. And Little Africa then transformed into Chinatown. 
Which an interesting note about African immigration, and there are wonderful videos and information out there about the original free black uh, settlement that was forced out of Central Park. There's a big section of Central Park that was belonging to free Africans. Um, but, of course, with the passage of time and the push of the immigrants and the slave stories, that all dissipated and, and went away. But it is in our history, and it is something that we should know. Uh, and why these, and I'm going to get ready to stop this here, but the enclaves, why they had these special places that existed for these immigrant groups is very important to know. And it gave them their own community, a source of protection, um, where if you were coming here, you knew that you could go to this place and people would speak your language and be able to help you find clothing or food, shelter, and, and why they have continued to stay almost in these little mini, they call Chinatown, right? Chinatown, Germantown, you know, all of these little areas because they were safe havens for these immigrants. So I'm going to get into some more stuff on the next video with this. We'll finish up the series on immigration, but hopefully you've enjoyed the story so far and you've learned something new, and maybe it's inspired you to look up something else in our American history and or world history. It is a very important thing to know your history because if you do, then there's a good chance a lot of the bad stuff doesn't get repeated. So with that, we'll look forward to the next video when we talk a little bit more about all the different ways in the lives of the enclaves. So, you guys have a super week. And as always, follow me where you can, right? Facebook, Facebook group. There's a private group. Got Patreon. Thank you so much for subscribing. If you like what I do, bring some people on board and let's all learn together. And uh, I'm also on Twitter and, you know, the usual suspects, Instagram, that kind of thing. You guys have a super week. As always, very on.